How many of you are thankful for America? Seriously. Boy, go try living in some other nation. You come back and kiss the ground. I went on a mission trip once to India. And it was great. We were there 10 days. I ate almost nothing. Uh, I got sick. If I had not taken um, oatmeal, what do you call those, the granola bars with me, I'd have starved to death. My, my belt went down three notches. And I remember coming back, we landed in Hawaii. And I got out of that jet. And before I walked into our hotel, I bowed and I touched that ground. I said, thank you, Jesus, for America. I'm just telling you, so good to see all of you. I want to brag on something real quick. Here's our TPC times. Now, we don't do this, but for one reason, that you would know what's going on in the church. And I want to show you this one. They have excelled. It's always good. But my very, very talented staff just excelled with this one. It's 36 pages, tells you everything going on in our church I hope you're not just, well, I'm going to get to the church service and do the service and leave and and not plug in. We want you to plug in. And this will tell you how to plug in. It begins with a great article by some guy named Jeff. And then it goes from there. And I mean, our people are giving testimonies in here, and you ought to read it. They did a fantastic, the graphics, it's just incredible. So I wanted to brag on it and uh, give our office staff a hand. They do a great job. Amen. All right. Now I got to try something because tonight I'm using my pointer just for a little bit. So hold on. Okay. I'm so glad that I tried this. Okay. There. Glory to God. I'm going to have fun. All right. Because there's a map I want to show you. But, but it died on me, so I don't know why it died on me. I guess it just shuts off on its own. Okay, none of this is going to be on the tape. Y'all ready to go through the book of Philippians? How many of you want some joy? Uh, how many want some joy? And you realize that joy and happiness are two different things because happiness depends on a happening. Happiness depends on a happening. But joy depends on just being right with God. Joy flows from God. Amen? So let's pray together, and then we're going to get right into the book of Philippians, or the letter to the Philippians. Lord, thank you for this incredible letter that Paul wrote from a prison. We thank you, Lord, for his heart. We thank you, Lord, for the anointing of God that was on him to write inerrant scripture. And Lord, we thank you. This is a letter not just to the Philippian church, but to all of us. It's a letter of encouragement that we would walk in joy. Now open the word of God to us, Lord. Let the Holy Spirit be here, the teacher of the church. And Lord, give us understanding. Uh, Give us wisdom. Give us insight. Help us to get it. Help us to get what God intended us to get. In Jesus' name, now will you breathe an, an earnest prayer? Just say, Lord, change me tonight. Renew my mind tonight. And give me joy tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Tell your neighbor, joy, joy, joy. Amen. Joy in my heart. Now, how many of you read ahead? I'm just curious. You knew I was going here, and you read ahead. That's great. Now, I want to give you a little bit of historical background because we're, we're looking at a, a letter here. We're going to go through the whole letter. And so I want you to understand 
some of the things surrounding it, some of the history. So let's talk about Philippi, because Philippi is, of course, where the Philippian church was birthed. Now, the town of Philippi was in Macedonia, and it overlooked the coastal plain and the bay at Neapolis. It was made a Roman colony by Emperor Augustus, and so it was part of the Roman way of life. It was under the Roman thumb of dictatorship. Y'all do know that most cultures before America were miserable. Societies in history were, were so far below what we are able to enjoy in America. Most societies were disease-ridden, poverty-infested. They were run by despots, dictators, um, um, tyrants. You were not free. There was no such thing as First Amendment, freedom of speech, second, you know, all these things that we enjoy. None of it was there. It was miserable to live in most cultures in the past. Nothing like we know now. So Philippi was under the Roman rule, Roman dictatorship. It was an old Greek city and an important gold mining center. Gold coins were minted there. It was also an important trade route, uh, which is one reason the Romans made it their own and posted a military garrison there because it was a key point of entry uh, for trade routes and, and business and whatnot. Now, Paul arrived in Philippi from the town of Troas, and I'm going to show you his route on a map in just a moment. But in Troas, he had seen a vision of a man from Macedonia urging him to come over and help us. Now, you'll remember he tried going into two different places, and I'm going to show you these on the map. He tried going into two different places to preach. This is his second missionary journey. And both times, the Holy Ghost blocked him. Now we go, why in the world would the Holy Ghost block you from preaching the gospel? Well, only God knows the answer to that because the Holy Spirit did block them. But we can easily surmise he blocked them because he had something better he wanted to aim them towards. And they found that out later. Now, he was on a second missionary journey, as I said, his second missionary journey lasted three years and covered around 2,700 miles. Stop and think about that. 27, when was the last time you walked around the block? Right? 2,700 miles, this little Jewish man with his entourage traveled to carry Jesus. 2,700 miles. Miles. Paul's response to the vision that he was given was swift. He's seen this man come over and help us in Macedonia. Come help us. So it says, now after he had seen the vision immediately, and I'm reading out of Acts 16, verse 10. After he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia. This is, this is um, likely Luke talking. And concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, here's the map. And let me show you this map. Let me get over here where I can point to it. Oh, there, good, it's up there. Now, I want you to notice that my pointer is giving me a problem. Of course it is. There it is. There it is. Yay. Everybody look now. Let's start down here at Jerusalem. This is where the first church was born. 
The Holy Spirit fell where? On the day of Pentecost? Where did it fall? Not the upper room. Where were they? What town? Jerusalem. All right. Now, but then the Antioch church was born, and the Antioch church was the first Gentile church. You and me were included in the blessings of the gospel. Now, the Antioch church soon became the predominant outreach church. That is, it became the headquarters for Paul, his teams. They were sent out from Antioch. Jerusalem sort of faded a little bit into the background, and Antioch became what we would call the happening, red-hot, spirit-filled, missionary-sending church of that time. Now, when Paul was sent out on the second missionary journey, look at how he traveled. He went around the Mediterranean seashore there and went to Derby. Now, look, he's headed west. He goes to Lystra. Then he goes north a little bit to Iconium, then to Antioch. I know what you're thinking, but we were just in Antioch. There's two Antiochs. And all you need to know is the church at Antioch was in this one. There were two Antiochs. I'm not going to take the time to explain why. There's a second one. All we need to know is he passed through it. So here they go. They're walking. Everybody say walking. Here they go. Now they're headed west, and then they go a little bit northwest. And then right around when they were here, you see Mysia and you see Bithynia. They tried to go into both places, and the Holy Spirit said no and blocked them right there. So they got blocked here, they got blocked here. And they're going, what is up? Where's God? Well, why is he blocking me from going to preach the gospel here in Asia? But then they went down to Troas. Everybody say Troas. Now, when he's in Troas, he's praying and he has the vision. And he sees a man come over to Macedonia. Well, Paul the Apostle said, you got it. God has finally explained why he blocked us there and he blocked us in Bithynia because he's calling us to cross the Mediterranean and go into Neapolis and Philippi, the area of Macedonia. So they crossed the Mediterranean, landed on the shore in Neapolis and went about nine miles into Philippi. And that's where we come up to how the Philippian church was born. Amen. I really feel professorial after that. Amen. So everybody get it. Now, you see how far they walked. See, if you went with Paul, you were not going to be staying at Holiday Inn. There were no cars, no buses, no planes, no trains, no nothing. You walked. Maybe you had some horses, but mainly you walked. And it was rough when you went with Paul or on any of the missionary journeys. Now, with that in mind, for 15 years, Paul had labored in the east. The east is comprised of what was on that side of the Mediterranean. When he crossed the Mediterranean, he was going into the west. He had been in the east all of his missionary labors for 15 years. But now, when he steps onto the shore of Neapolis... The east is behind him, 
and the vast west is in front of him. And this is a major, major, major open door of opportunity to take the gospel to masses of Gentiles. Amen? So when they arrived in Philippi, about nine miles from the shore where they landed, Paul was soon confronted. Immediately, the devil attacked. How many of you have ever seen when you're under an anointing and you're following the Holy Ghost and he's leading you to something uh, that, that, that where the devil's going to lose some ground, the devil's going to kick up dust and attack. Amen? So I want you to notice, as soon as they get into Philippi, they are confronted with a slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination. We would call her today a psychic, the psychic hotline. Don't ever call that thing. It's devils talking to you. If you want direction for your life, don't ever ask the devil. If you've got a Ouija board in your house, throw it away quick. Get it out of there. Because we get our guidance from God. The word of God, spirit of God, counsel of God. We don't need any other guidance. Amen? Amen. Amen. Give God praise for that. Because when you seek guidance from anything other than God, the devil's going to guide you. And I guarantee you, he never guides you to a good place. Now... Paul finally got grieved, this girl walking along behind them. These are men of the most high God. They show you the way to salvation. And she was saying the right things, but in his spirit, he knew that the spirit speaking was wrong. Did you ever have that happen to you? What you're hearing sounds right, but the Holy Spirit in you says, "Eh, something is wrong. So Paul finally turned around, looked at her, And he cast the evil spirit out of her. And when he did, she immediately lost the power to divine. And those who had been using her as a slave girl to make money off of her demonic gift became furious that Paul had ruined their source of income. So they kicked up a fuss, stirred up a crowd, Paul and Silas were arrested. You know the story. They were unlawfully beaten, unlawfully imprisoned. And at midnight, instead of moaning and griping and complaining about their plight, they decided they would praise God. And when they praised God, the original jailhouse rock happened. Elvis stole that from the book of Acts. And supernaturally, that jail was was, uh, experiencing an earthquake. And all the prison doors flew open. All the prisoners walked out. And it was an incredible deliverance. And that was the beginning of the first Western church. That right there. Because immediately the jailer who was going to kill himself was stopped by Paul who said, don't do this. We're, We're all here. Nobody has left. And the jailer immediately repented. He got baptized. His whole family repented. They got baptized. And that was the first fruits of, 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 uh, well, Lydia was first. And the Philippian jailer was second. And so there you got the beginning of the Philippian church being born right there. Now, after staying in Philippi for a short while, Paul left Dr. Luke in charge of organizing the brand new church and marched on for further European conquests and left Luke to put it all together. And the Philippian church formed quickly. Now, for the record, I got to tell you this. I want you, I want you just to think about This man, Paul's labors. I personally believe, it's my conviction, he's the greatest Christian that ever lived. Now, I don't want to make comparisons, but you show me a better Christian than Paul. They don't exist. This man was so 
possessed of the Spirit of God, yielded to the Spirit of God, has such a passion for Jesus Christ. Uh, to me, uh, you read Paul. There, there's Now, Peter, great of course, they were all great Christians, but Paul just shines kind of in his own stratosphere. I'm not lifting up a man, but I am pointing out the work of God in a man. Okay? But here's something just you might want to know. It's estimated the Apostle Paul traveled 10,000 miles in his ministry. 10,000 miles. It's a big deal. I mean, I, I can get on a jet and do that. Yeah, you can get on a jet and do that. But stop for a minute. 10,000 miles, no car, no train, no plane, horses every once in a while, but he walked it. He walked it. Now, how far is it from here to Galveston? Say 300 miles, 300 miles or so. And if you get into a car, it takes you about five to six hours to get there in a car to go 300 miles. Three, think of walking from here all the way to Houston, through Houston, all the way to Galveston, 300 miles, this man walked 10,000 miles to take Christ to the lost. You talk about blisters on your feet. You talk about sun-baked. You talk about tough, rough, leathered, in, in the sense of his skin surely looked like after all that time in the sun, this little Jewish man. But he said, the love of Christ constrains me, drives me, motivates me, fuels me. When Paul wrote the letter we're about to study, he was a prisoner awaiting trial in Rome. So the starting this church was over and done with. Some time has gone by. Now he's a prisoner. And he writes, initially he wrote to thank his friends for their financial support that we're going to read about in chapter 4 and to encourage them to put aside their petty differences. He's going to name names. He's going to name names. Can you, well, I'll get to that when we get to that. Put it this way, I don't want my name in a Pauline letter for the rest of history. Uh, quit, quit, quit being ornery. Get along with the other church folks. But anyway, y'all are quiet tonight. Okay, the keynote of his letter is joy. Everybody say joy. Now, no matter what life or Satan may throw at the believer, we're on the winning side, says Paul. His prayer was that the Christians might catch this same vision of a triumphant life in Christ, and that's what I hope to achieve by teaching this letter, that we are to walk in joy. Amen. So he begins with his customary greeting. Let's start with verse 1. And two, Paul, he says, and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's pick apart some words. The word bondservant is from a Greek word meaning somebody who belongs to another without any ownership rights of their own. Now, church, let me tell you something about you and me. Was that true of him just because he was the Apostle Paul? No, no. Because what did he write to the church? He said, you are bought with a price, and you are not your own. Therefore, glorify God 
in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God owns them. So when he calls himself a bondservant, that's just not the apostles. It's true of all believers. We don't own ourselves. It's not my body, not your body. Uh, It's not my spirit, not your spirit. You're not your own. You're his. Amen? You're his. Can we say together, I'm his, and he is mine. So that means when he says, go, we go. When he says, stop, we stop. When he says, don't, we don't. When he says, do, we do. He's the boss, applesauce, right? Right? See, people say, well, I got saved, and then 10 years later, I made him Lord. No, you, you did not make him Lord. The minute you were saved, he was Lord. You just didn't have good theological teaching to tell you so. But I'm telling you so tonight. You don't make him Lord. The minute you're saved, he's Lord. Amen? And he owns us because we were bought with the currency of the blood of Jesus. So it's also the word for slave. It's the Greek word doulos, and it means slave. Paul's literally saying, I'm the slave of Jesus Christ. Paul lived with the understanding he was bought with a price and he was no longer his own, and that's the way he did life. I'm bought with a price, no longer my own. Now we see the church government in the Philippian church was firmly in place. He names two church positions, bishops, deacons. There were bishops, which is the word for elders or overseers, and there were deacons, diakonos, meaning servant, and the deacons were called to take care of the practical needs of the church. We have overseers at Turning Point, and we have many deacons, and we're about to anoint some new deacons. We have, we have overseers, and we have deacons. That's church government. And look how quickly it was put in place in Philippi. I mean, they had that thing down. They could birth a church fast. Paul speaks grace and peace over them in the form of a blessing. Grace and peace be unto you. Uh, amen? Can I just speak it over you? Grace and peace. Isn't it good to be, have that spoken over you? Grace and peace be unto you in the name of Jesus Christ. Then Paul tells them that they are the reason. They, the Philippians, are the reason for much thanksgiving to God on his part. Paul was a people person. Paul was not some ivory tower theologian nobody could relate to. Paul was a people person. He was a lover of people, a lover of people. He says in verse 3 and 4, I thank my God upon every, every time I remember you, I thank God. How many people do we thank God for every time we remember them? Every time we think of them, oh, thank you, Jesus, for that person and that person. How how many in our lives do we say, thank you, God, for that person every time we think of them? He says, I thank God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making a request for you all with what, everybody? Joy. Now, where is he again? Prison. He's in a dark, dank, dingy, depressing Roman prison. But he says, I think of you and I, and I have joy. Now we're, we got to see this in this letter, that there is joy available in God, no matter the circumstances. There's joy, joy unspeakable, said Peter, and full of glory. Now Paul says, I thank God for you. The word he uses for thank is the same word Jesus used when lifting up the bread to heaven 
before feeding the multitudes. It says he took it and blessed it and thanked God for it and gave it. The same word Jesus used for thank is the word Paul uses here when he says, I thank God every time I remember you. It's the same word Paul used when he lifted up the bread on the storm at sea when it looked like they weren't going to make it and they broke bread. He said, it says he gave thanks. Same Greek word. He thanked God with the same Greek word. The same word. Thank you, Lord. So Paul is as thankful for the Philippians as he was for bread in a dark hour. I want us in this series to touch the humanity of Paul. I want us to see what God has done in this man's heart to make him a lover. Because church, remember, he was a hater. Do you remember? He confessed, I killed Christians. I had them thrown in prison. I made it my life's goal to, to wreck the, the church. When Paul, Paul the, the name of Saul struck fear in the heart of every Christian in his day. He had received an edict to go and arrest every Christian he could find when God struck him to the ground and revealed himself to him. And he came to Christ. But before that, this man was a hater. He was a religious hater. And look what God has put in his heart. And if he can put that in his heart, can he put it in our hearts? Come on. I mean, this guy hated. He was a hater. And as much as he hated, now he's a lover. He loves. He says, I pray always for you. Not only do I thank God always for you, but I pray always for you. And this was Paul's incredible model for us. Let me just show you how, how that phrase is repeated through all of his letters. He told the Romans he prayed unceasingly for them. He told the Corinthians he was always thanking God for them. He told the Ephesians he never stopped thanking God for them. He told the Colossians he was always praying for them. He told the Thessalonians he was always making mention of them in his prayers. And he was thanking God for them all the time. He told Timothy he prayed for him day and night. And he told Philemon he made mention of him always in his prayers. When did this man have time to eat? Because he's always thanking God and praying for the people of God. Always. Always. Everybody say always. That's how he was consumed with love for the people. It's amazing to me. That's why I say, you show me a better Christian. He truly lived according to his own advice. Redeem the time, which means make the most of the time God's given you. Make the most of it. Buy it up. Redeem it. Because every one of us have a an hourglass God has over our life. It's been turned upside down and God knows when the last grain of sand will fall through for every one of us. And so he says, the time I give you, make the most of it. And this is what Paul did. Okay, God's given me this time. I'm going to pray for the church. I'm going to thank God for the church. I'm going to preach the gospel and I'm going to give the devil heaven. Devil gives you hell. He says, devil gives me hell. I'm going to give him heaven because heaven defeats his hell. Amen. Come on. Now, he's getting real personal now, and this is the way Paul does. He remembers next the strong friendships forged from the very first day of his visit to Philippi. He says in verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from when, everyone? 
the first day until now. He's saying, I'm thankful for your fellowship that you have stuck with me from the first day I met you until now. He was thinking, no doubt, about Lydia. You can read about Lydia in Acts chapter 16. She was a seller of purple garments. Uh, and she was apparently the very first convert in Philippi when Paul and Silas went down to a river. Some, uh, Lydia and some of her companions were down there. Paul began to share Jesus with them, and Lydia was saved. And she insisted that Paul and Silas stay in her house with her husband and her family. Uh, she wanted the man of God to stay there because she had been so touched by the gospel message and by Christ. So he was thinking of Lydia when he said, I'm so thankful that you've stuck with me. Even now that I'm sitting in prison, you haven't forsaken me. And he's also thinking of the jailer, no doubt, the Philippian jailer, who, as I said, Paul stopped from committing suicide after the earthquake that opened the prison doors. The jailer feared the Romans would blame him for their escape and kill him. So he was going to kill himself before they did it. And he and his whole family believed on Christ and were baptized. And they too took in Paul and Silas and fed them. And he said, listen, you're on my mind when I think of those who have stayed with me. You know, folks, let me tell you about people. Some come in for a season. Some come in for a reason. But some come in forever. The ones that come in forever, you can count usually on one, maybe two hands. The ones that come in for a reason... They're there for that reason, they go. They come in for a season, they're there for a season, for whatever reason, they go. But then there's people who, no matter what happens to you, your ups, your downs, your valleys, your mountaintops, no matter your failures, your successes, no matter what happens to you, they're there and no one's gonna take them from you. These are the people, Paul says, I'm thankful for your fellowship. In the gospel, from that first day we met until now. Thank God there's leavers, but there's also cleavers. Amen? Amen, amen. Come on. Come on. So those are the, some of the people that Paul had in mind when he mentions they had fellowship with him in the gospel from the first day to now. Now, next comes one of my favorite verses. You know this one, I'm sure. It is an incredible verse. Being confident. Let's read it together. We all love it. Let's read it. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. Everybody say with me, he began it. He's going to finish it. Amen. Give the Lord praise. Come on. Paul's letting us know, of course, Paul's swan song, his, Paul's drumbeat, Paul's mantra was we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. So it's not by our own efforts that we are saved, but it's by he who has begun the work of grace in us. Jesus, says Hebrews, is the author, the originator, and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. Amen? He began our faith. He's going to walk us through this life, sustain us by grace. And when we reach the finish line, it's going to be by grace. And when we go into heaven, it's going to be by grace. When we see Jesus for the first time, it's going to be by grace. And not one thing that we ever did is going to get us there, but it's by grace through faith we're saved. It's a gift, totally a gift. 
Now, so Paul writes, the same Lord that began the work will continue the work to completion so that we are ready for the day. Everybody say the day. The day of Jesus Christ. Now, I pointed that out because I want to show you the Bible distinguishes between various special days. The day of Christ. Notice Paul mentions in verse 6, the day of Christ. The day of Christ. He is going to He's going to carry us all the way to the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Christ mentioned here is the day when Jesus will come and receive his church to himself in the rapture, preceded immediately by the judgment seat of Christ, where our works will be judged by fire. We won't answer for sin because sin is forgiven, but we will, our works, what we did with the time God gave us and the gifts God gave us will be judged by fire and rewards will be divvied out at the judgment seat of Christ. The various crowns we read about that they're going to cast at Jesus' feet um, once we're in heaven, those crowns are handed out on the day of Jesus Christ. Now there's another day mentioned in scripture and it's called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is mentioned 16 times in the Old Testament and four times in the New Testament. Now, what is it? The day of the Lord points to the coming judgment. And I'm talking about the judgment for sin. Followed by the millennial age, and it concludes with the cataclysmic dissolution of the entire universe. There's a judgment coming. Preachers don't talk about it anymore to their, to their loss. And I believe they'll be judged for that because we need to be telling this world, God loves you, but there's a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming. God will judge sin. There's a judgment coming. And sometimes I can't believe it hasn't happened yet when I look at what people are doing. But there's a judgment coming. It's called the great white throne judgment. And all the nations of the world, all who have ever lived and died are going to be brought before God who have never repented of their sin. And they will be judged. The books will be open. The book of life is open. You read about it at the end of Revelations. And, uh, and they are judged for their sin. And when their name is not found written in the book of life, they are cast into the lake of fire. I didn't write that. The Holy Spirit gave that to us. Jesus gave that to us. The Bible gives that to us. Judgment is coming. There's going to be a millennium. A thousand years where the lion will lay down with the lamb. Jesus is going to rule the world with a scepter of righteousness. The devil is going to be bound for a thousand years. Thank God it will be a time of beauty, of glory, of of just a, a wonderful time. But listen, at the end of that and at the end of the judgment, there is going to be a, there is going to be a cataclysmic uh, um, dissolution of the entire earth and everything in it. Peter said, the day of the Lord, there's that phrase, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the elements or the heavens will pass away with a roar, with a roar. I wish I could show you the Greek there. It is a deafening roar. You think of the sound of a tornado, the way we've heard them described. There's this deafening roar where you can't, you can't, Imagine the sound of it. Like they, they describe it as a train coming through town. This deafening roar. That pales compared to this. It, I, the, the heavens are going to pass away with this loud roar. And the elements, that means the dirt, everything material, 
will be destroyed. Another version says melted with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Every car, every building, every uh, every landmark, every nation, every continent, everything ever built by man, everything material on earth that you ever touch, taste, see, smell is going to be burned up, melted, destroyed, done away with, and God is going to bring a new heaven and a new earth because the old heaven and the old earth have passed away. Folks, there's a judgment coming. There's some heavy times coming. So that's the day of the Lord. That's the day of the Lord. How many of you are glad you're not going to be around for the day of the Lord? Come on. All right. Another day, just one more that I want to point out, is called the day of God. And the day of God is where the eternal state It's the eternal state beyond all the events of time when God is all in all. All this stuff is all wrapped up. There's no more judgment, no more devil, no more nothing. We're in glory with him, and he is all in all. And we are in eternity for eternity, wrapped in eternity, forever in eternity, enjoying the bliss and the beauty and the glory of Christ. That's the day of God. I like this. It's been said that there is yesterday, there is today, and there's that day. That day, the day of Christ's return, is the day we look for and we live for. And it's the day Paul was talking about when he said the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Everybody say, this is heavy stuff, Pastor Jeff. Heavy, isn't it? Right? Now, next, Paul recognizes that the Philippians, they were not afraid of his chains. They weren't afraid to identify with him. Verse 7, just as it is right for me to think of this of you all, because I have you in my heart. There's the lover again. Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. Now, notice, when they chained me and when they brought me before the authorities to defend, to make a defense for my faith in Christ, you didn't leave me. You stuck with me. To your own peril, you stuck with me. Paul was considered to be an insurrectionist by Roman authorities. He was a troublemaker as far as they were concerned. He had boldly proclaimed a king greater than Caesar, and that was bad. You didn't do that in ancient Rome. Caesar was the man. Caesar was considered God. So when you said there's a, there's a stronger God, mightier God, who eclipses Caesar, your time's limited in Rome. So to stand with him was to place yourself in imminent danger, but that's what the Philippians did. They stood with him. An analogy would be of those who stood with and protected the Jews during Hitler's reign of terror. They endangered their own lives to save Jewish people. So did the Philippians with Paul. Because they stood with him in his persecutions, they were made partakers. Catch this, everybody. Let me give you a powerful truth here. Watch this. Because they stood with him in his persecutions, they were made partakers with me, says Paul, of grace. The same grace that rested on Paul 
and was enjoyed or was enjoyed by the Philippian church because they had stood with him in his cause, the cause of Christ. Now, let me give you something Jesus said to help you understand this. Jesus said, whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Wait a minute. Listen now. Everybody look at me. This is so powerful. All right? The power of receiving who God sends. The blessing that comes from receiving who God sends. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet, in other words, whoever receives a prophet and the prophet's anointing will receive the same reward the prophet gets. Come on. And whoever, watch this, welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Now, in another place, Jesus said, if you receive me, you receive him who sent me. Now, he said to his disciples, when you go into a city or a town and they receive you, here's the deal. If they receive you, they receive me. If they receive me, they receive him who sent me. If they reject you, they reject me. And if they reject me, they reject the one who sent me. People who say, oh, I don't need Jesus to know, to know God. Yes, you do. Because if you reject Jesus, you reject the God that sent him. But the flip side is, these Philippians had said, Paul, we're with you all the way. We're not going to reject you. We're embracing you. We're with you in your stand for Christ. You're our guy. We're not going to disown you. We're not going to say we don't know you. We're not going to distance ourselves from you. We receive an apostle in the anointing of an apostle. And he says, now you are experiencing a trickle-down, a trickle-down blessing. You're receiving the grace that's on me because you received me. You got to be careful who you reject. The body of Christ as a whole has not this wisdom. Can I say that again? The body of Christ as a whole doesn't have this wisdom. Because I see Christians, I can just tell you the way I've been talked to by some people. Now, I'm just a normal guy. I, I'm a pastor. I don't want anybody. I have started three churches. I've apostled three churches. But I don't call myself an apostle. And I wouldn't want you to. I've started three churches, okay? And, and they've done well. But the deal is, um, God has sent me. And I've had people say things. And I say, you're not saying that to Jeff flawed, imperfect Jeff. And I could point out other people who I know have an anointing on their life, and I see people so flippantly attack them and tear them down and badmouth them and slander them. But they don't know they're cutting themselves off from a blessing. Because if you receive somebody sent, you receive the one who sent them. Right? He then expresses, he goes on with deep affection for them. He says in verse 8, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now we know from chapter 4, verse 18, that Paul's co-laborer, Epaphroditus, had brought Paul a financial gift from the Philippians and it brought him up to date regarding their spiritual condition. Epaphroditus brought them, or brought Paul, a report on how the Philippian church was doing. He's in jail. He can't go find out on his own. And this conjured 
fond memories in Paul where he's essentially saying, you know what, can I just say this without sounding weird? It's almost like the church was his girlfriend. He loves the church. No wonder he didn't have time to get married. He was in love with the church. He talked to her like a girlfriend. I miss you, baby. I love you. I hate being apart from you. He sounds like this. It's like he's in love with the church. I'm longing for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. I miss you, sweetie pie. It's almost like that. But it's a Christ love. He says, "I, I long for you with the affection of Christ. He's essentially saying, I miss you big time, deeply with the very love of Christ. He longed to see Lydia and her household, the jailer and his household, all those that had come to Christ with his first visit. He says, I'm missing you. I love you. You're not just a job to me. I love you. Now, next, we get a glimpse into the prayers Paul prayed for them. This is going to get good, and we're coming to the close. How many of y'all have been blessed tonight? If you've been blessed, give the Lord a hand of praise. Come on. All right. Now, we're getting a glimpse into what he prayed for the church, because what Paul prayed for the church is the will of God for not just the Philippian church, but all of us. He said in verse 9, this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Catch that. Paul, the lover of the church, prays that their own love for one another will grow without limit more and more and more and more ad infinitum. But notice something. Paul distinguishes something about love that we're missing today. There is what I like to call a sloppy agape out there. Everybody say sloppy agape. Now, agape is the love of God, right? But there's a sloppy agape out there. And here's what sloppy agape says. We should love people to the point of never correcting them, never offering wise counsel, never judging the things they do, and we're told that is true love. Our culture says this, you judge me, you don't love me. That's what our culture says. If you love me, you won't judge me. Do you know how harebrained that is? Do you know how crazy that is? Y'all, give me, y'all got the no-nods tonight. Do this or do this. Do you know how crazy that is? There you go. That's crazy. That's crazy. If I love you, I won't judge you. If I love you, I won't correct you. That's not love. Listen, he says... You need to be discerning. He said, I pray that with your love, you have knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment. Um, Paul's prayer was that the Philippians would love with both knowledge and with discernment. Love is universal, but it's not gullible. Can I say that again? Love is universal, but it's not gullible. Love is universal, but it's not blind. Love is universal, but it doesn't give up the principles and truth and holiness of God. Love, real love, should be discerning and based on knowledge gained by experience. The word he uses for discernment literally means judgment, to judge something as to its value or to make a judgment call. True love, folks, 
please believe me, draws borders, limits, parameters, lines in the sand. True love. Let me ask you, does God draw borders with you? Does God say, oh, go and do whatever you want. I just love you. Does, does God do that? No. No. What does God do every day? He puts borders around us. There are things we know we can't say, do, places we know we can't go. There's activities and lifestyles that we can't partake of because God's love sets borders. And God, let me ask you, if you went out and sinned tonight, would God correct you? Does he love you enough to correct you? Or would he just say, oh, I understand. Go do what you want. I got it. I just know that I love you no matter what you do. Is that what God does? So how, how is it that we've been laden with that concept of love when that's not God's love at all? A parent, a parent who loves his child in knowledge and all discernment will not indulge his every wish and will not withhold rebuke and discipline. If you do, you don't love them. I remember I had a friend when I was a rebellious teenager, and he used to say to me, my parents don't care what I do. And, and, we, and we used to say, you got cool parents. Because my parents, they're, they're just a bunch of duds. They, they're always telling me I can't this and that. You got cool parents. You know where he is right now? He's in prison. And he's been there a long time. His parents weren't cool. They didn't love him. Nobody has ever loved us like God loves us. The cross of Christ shouts to the world, God loves you. But God's love never violates his holiness. It never operates in conflict with his wisdom and never ignores his own righteous laws. And if that's God's love towards us, if we know somebody and we love them and they're in a lifestyle that is damaging to them, it, it, then, then of course we're going to make a value call and in love say, you know what, I love you no matter what, but there's no way I can agree with this or that in your life because it's destroying you. We're not to walk in sloppy agape. We're to walk in God agape. So Paul says, I pray that your love for one another grows by leaps and bounds and that it's accompanied by wisdom and discernment. Now, let me close with this. One more verse and we're done. Why is that important? Why is it important to have discernment? He says, number 10, verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere. Everybody say sincere. And without offense till the day of Christ. Two words, quickly. The word approve means to examine, to test. It's used in reference to testing metals for purity. Paul's idea is that Christians should carefully examine what comes into their life to see if it is from God or from the enemy. Is it a good thing or is it something bad posing as good? Is it something posing as good, but it's not the best? We are to be discerning people. We are to be discerning people. Love and discernment go hand in hand. Why are we to be discerning that you may be sincere? Now, sincere doesn't mean what you think. You think that means honest. That's not what it means. It means to be tested by the sunlight. Now, let me explain. In Paul's day, a sculptor would often carve too deeply into the marble. So he's, he's carving out a statue. He would carve too deep, 
and he would make a mistake. So he would say, oops. So he would take some wax, and he would put wax in the mistake, in the cut, to hide the mistake. And the wax looked like marble. Then he put it out there to sell. And when a buyer came along, they looked at this statue, and because he had the mistake covered in with wax, the buyer couldn't see it. So the buyer would think they got a great deal, and they would buy it and take it home and put it outside. The sunlight would hit it, and the wax would melt. And all of a sudden, all these flaws and what they thought was a perfect sculpture show up. And they say, I've been had. So wise customers learn to write in their sale contract for marble sculptures the words without wax. They demanded that the work be sincere, without wax, that it be real, genuine. And Paul says, I want all of you Christians to be real. I want you to be genuine. I want you to be without offense. I don't want you hiding the mistakes. I want you to come into the sunlight and and I want you to be pure marble. I want you to be pure marble because we're all headed for the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. So to accomplish this, we've got to be wise, discerning, avoiding the traps of Satan. Jesus said, wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove. Let's stand. Can we? Amen. How many of you are blessed tonight? Wasn't that good stuff? Amen, amen. Everybody say, without wax. Amen. Let's lift our hands to the Lord Jesus. Lord, we just thank you tonight that you're working on us, the church of God. You're working on, let me pray for you, church. Lord, you're working on the church of God. You're working on all of us. And Lord, you know how I pray weekly that this church would grow in Christ into maturity, that I would grow in Christ into maturity. I need you as much as they need you. We need you, Lord. We all need you. We want to be without wax. We want to be ready for the day of Christ. We want to be ready for the day of Jesus. We want to be ready. So, Lord, we give ourselves to you without uh, any reservation, as much as lies within us. We say, Lord... Bring us into the fullness of the stature of Christ. Maturity, thinking like him, walking like him, talking like him, reaching like him, loving like him, patient like him, long-suffering like him, forgiving like him. I pray this for all of us here tonight, Lord. In the name of Jesus, let's sing one.